welcome to our Bible Ponder this evening. We've reached the climactic moment in the Gospel of Luke, and our journey throughout the Gospel has led us to this moment. It is the death of Jesus. But before we get there, <laughs> I thought we would take a real brief detour for this week to talk a bit about something that will set us up for our reading of the death of Jesus in Luke. Um, so I want to talk this evening about what are called theories of atonement. Um, and what this basically means is these are various ways that Christians throughout the centuries have answered the question, what did Jesus's death mean? Or what did Jesus's death do or accomplish? Or in other words, when you, when you say to someone, Jesus died for your sins, what do you mean by that? Theories of atonement are ways of answering those questions. So I'm going to break these down in um, what might be a slightly reduction sort of way. So don't worry, this isn't some academic class. I'm not going to be um, super in-depth about a lot of these, um, but I'm going to go through kind of three sort of ways of looking at the atonement um, that get into some atonement theories. Some of them are related. There are more specific theories of atonement. And if you want to know about more about these, a quick Google search will let you find a few good um, responses. There's information on Wikipedia about theories of atonement that will help give you um, some theologians and dates of when they came about. You know, you'll hear talk about Irenaeus and Athanasius and Augustine and people like that. Um, but I'm not necessarily going to get into those people and those dates as much. So I'm going to try and break things down to, to make them fairly simple. But there are reasons why this is really, really important. Because the ways that we understand atonement, which is, again, what does the death of Jesus on the cross accomplish, really impacts how we live our lives as Christians. And the ways that certain churches and certain traditions of Christianity have thought about atonement has really influenced their ethics, their mission, their outlook. Everything about it kind of stems from the atonement theory because the death of Jesus is so central to what we believe as Christians. And so the way we understand that death really has a lot of knock-on effects to then how we live our lives as Christians, how we construct our church, and how we view and interact within the world. So I think this is really, really important for us to think about and to understand and to think about what we believe. It also really impacts a lot of our sort of implicit theology. And what I mean by that is it, it affects how we read the Bible, and I'll talk a bit more about this in a minute um, with the first one we'll talk about, but it affects how we read the Bible, it affects our, our hymns and the, and the hymns we write and the hymns that we um, sing in church. Some of them will have um, will come from a perspective of one theory of atonement, some will come from a different one, um, and so it's important that we kind of are familiar with some of this. So we'll jump right in with the first one, and this is maybe the one that you might be most familiar with because we are in the Church of Scotland and here in Ellen Parish Church. We are part of the Reformed tradition. We are a Protestant church in, in the West. And so this theory came out of the Reformation and is one of the predominant ones that, that gets spoken about and is in a lot of our hymns. And it's the idea of substitutionary atonement or what's sometimes called penal substitution, in other words, a penalty. And again, this comes out of the Reformation. 
And so it's this idea that Jesus dies as a sort of ultimate sacrifice. And the other thing I'll say just about all of these is to varying degrees, all of the theories come out of the biblical text. And so it's another one of those times in which the biblical text is not necessarily um, perfectly consistent in itself. And it will come up with mixed metaphors and Paul will have different ways of explaining it within Paul's own writings. And the gospels have different ways of talking about it because they're not necessarily trying to be cohesive. They're just grasping at language. So this idea of penal substitution is the idea that Jesus dies as an ultimate sacrifice or even the Passover lamb. The Gospel of John really gets into this metaphor of Jesus as the sort of Passover lamb and all of this imagery sort of leads into that. And it's this idea that Jesus is fulfilling or is even just part of the Old Testament sacrificial system but that in the Old Testament sacrificial system in which God needs a sort of blood sacrifice to, to forgive sins, but in the Day of Atonement you have to do this over and over again, that Jesus as this perfect sacrifice, the ultimate Passover lamb, does it once for all. And you'll be hearing in my language here already some, some sort of biblical language. Um, but in this theory, you have a sort of angry God that demands justice and that needs maybe a sort of payment. And this also comes into all, all people deserve to die. It's this original sin idea. Everyone has sin um, and everyone deserves death and punishment. Um, but Jesus lives a perfect life, a sinless life, a blameless life, and this is a necessary part of it. Um, and so Jesus's sinless, blameless life as the Passover lamb makes him the ultimate sacrifice to forgive sins. Um, and this is a pretty specific reading, mostly of Romans and the imagery of the Gospel of John. Um, but the thing is, it's pretty relatively new. It's still, like I said, from the Reformation. And it's a specific reading of Romans that actually assumes that substitutionary atonement is the main thing and then kind of reads that back into Romans. So let's talk about some of the problems of this idea of substitutionary atonement. You might recognize it from popular hymns that we sing in church. Specifically, there's one um, in Christ alone. There's a line that says, the wrath of God was satisfied, right? So it's one we're familiar with. There are quite a few problems with this and you'll get the, the sense and you might already that I don't particularly like this one and I don't, uh, I don't think it's the best way to explain what Jesus does, but we'll get into that. So this idea basically is that there is an angry God who must send himself to die to satisfy his own wrath. So in other words, it tries to say that God really loves humanity. God loves you. But also God is so angry and so mad and so in need of blood and justice that God can't control God's self except that God sends himself and Jesus to die as the perfect sacrifice to satisfy his own wrath, right? So God loves humanity so much he's going to save humanity from himself. Um, and that every human, for even the tiniest sin, deserves death and sort of an eternal torture. And this is, again, sort of part of the idea of substitutionary atonement, is the idea that there is this divine punishment of eternal torment. Um, so all of these things are kind of wrapped up together. And this is what I mean about why the theories of atonement are important, because theories of atonement also impact our ideas of afterlife and, and things like that. 
So really, it's kind of a narrow escape. But what this also kind of does is it separates out God and Jesus. So in the way I've sort of skewered this a bit is this idea of God having this sort of inner battle between God's love for humanity and God's wrath and need for blood. And so what it kind of does is it almost makes Jesus and God out to be two different people. And Jesus is the loving, you know, blameless sacrifice, and God is the angry God of righteousness and justice and wrath. Um, but we forget that that's not really very Trinitarian, that God is God and Jesus is God. And so if Jesus is revealing who God is, then surely Jesus's life, Jesus's character shows us a clearer picture of who God is than some Old Testament idea of a wrathful, vengeful God who needs blood. Um, so that's a problem for me. It also focuses far too much on the death of Jesus as the really the, the most important part. It, obviously, it is the most important part, but it's basically the only thing that matters. And the only part about his life that matters is that he lives a sort of sinless life as understood. And that sinless life is kind of understood in a pretty puritanical way. And so Jesus lives a, a kind of Puritan or Victorian idea of a sinless life. Um, but that's really it. Nothing about Jesus' instruction or his character, the things he does matter, which is then why you have to explain away, well, Jesus gets angry at the temple courts and you have to, well, you know, it's not really a sin because you're so focused on this idea of a sinless, blameless sacrifice. You also end up with some logical problems that come from this theory. Like, what about people who die without hearing or getting the chance to repent? You know, because it's all repent and be baptized and, you know, God's going to destroy you unless you repent and accept Jesus. And so what if they don't get the chance because, you know, it works in the paradigm where you say, you know, come to Jesus, repent of your sins, and the person either does and then they're saved or doesn't and then they're condemned to, again, hell and eternal torment and death. Um, and so then you have, what if people don't hear? And I've heard this explained way where it's like, oh, well, if people don't get the chance to hear and accept, then they're kind of exempt from the system. God's really not going to punish them because that's not really fair. But then the logical problem with that is that kind of makes the best strategy for mission and for saving souls to be basically keeping it to ourselves and not telling anyone. Because then if you don't tell anyone and then no one knows, then they're all sort of exempt from the system because God can't punish them if they didn't get the chance to hear and accept or reject it, right? So that's a kind of weird logical problem with that. Um, again, this has only really been the predominant way or a predominant way of seeing it in, in Protestant churches since the Reformation, though it's kind of presented and, and said to be the ancient way and the, the, you know, the original way of viewing um, the atonement, but it's really not. Historically, it's, it's fairly recent. Again, the Reformation was in the 1600s. So it's really only 400 years old versus 2,000 years old. Um, the other part of it, and I always say, I don't think God is petty. And this one sort of is the idea that God is kind of keeping a sin tally against you. And God is basically, you know, has a divine ledger of, of sins um, and that God Really, it makes God not about love and forgiveness, but about punishment. And the forgiveness almost feels like kind of a letdown to what God really wants, which is a punishment. And it's kind of like Jesus gets in the way. It's kind of like, ah, oh, darn, like humanity, you're spared because um, Jesus takes it. And I think that really takes away from the idea of God being loving and forgiving and welcoming and really choosing humanity. And it's more this idea that God's angry and wrathful and Jesus kind of, you know, comes in and jukes him. So that's one main theory, substitutionary atonement, and that one's really become popular in the last 400 years. And part of that is kind of, I think, a bit of moral control. 
it's a it's a really it's a simple system it's a system that makes sense it appeals to our own idea of an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth justice there are evil doers that are going to be punished and i think that feels good sometimes to think about evil people being punished but we're safe and all of that sort of stuff the next one we'll talk about and these other ones will be a bit quicker um, is one that's called ransom theory and this one is is similar to substitutionary atonement but the main difference is rather than Jesus dying to satisfy God's wrath in ransom theory and ransom theory is older than than um, penal substitution it's the idea that we are enslaved to um, perhaps even Satan himself or just to sin and death and that Jesus's death pays a ransom to free us from that slave um, that, that that enslavement uh, right and so you do get this again from the biblical text um, Matthew 20 and Mark 10 which are essentially the same verse the son of man came to serve not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many the same word for ransom is used in 1 Timothy 2 as well, the idea that Jesus dies as a ransom. Um, so it's similar that Jesus' death in it, in it, so it has similar problems in that um, it all is about Jesus' death. And Jesus' life just leads up to his death and his life and teaching and who he is as the revelation of God basically becomes meaningless and he is just kind of on earth as a sacrifice. Um, and also, if you're going to take the idea that you are slave to Satan, then um, Satan becomes a really big player in this theory. And um, again, it's really similar to penal substitution, except you have kind of a slightly less angry God. Don't like ransom theory quite as much. Although, again, you have that in the biblical text, but I think these verses are more grasping at language to explain kind of the unexplainable. The next theory, and this one's pretty important, this one actually has been the predominant theory of the church for most of the church's history. And this has been um, termed a Latin term that's not hard to get because you'll get it right away. It's called Christus Victor. And so it's this idea that Jesus is the victor, that Jesus conquers sin and death, or perhaps even in some ways of understanding this, conquers Satan himself. Um, and that this is maybe done through his death, but also in, in, you know, the kind of language of the creed that Jesus descends into hell. And it can get into this idea that maybe Jesus is like in hell battling Satan and comes up victorious. And that Jesus is, is a victor on our behalf. So rather than dying as a ransom, which then buys us back, which part of the problem, again, of ransom theory is then that's not forgiveness. God is not offering forgiveness to us, but God has bought us. That's that's not forgiveness. That's paying a ransom. So in Christus Victor, it's not Jesus dying as a ransom, but through Jesus' death, he is victorious over sin and death. And so in this theory, God is not the villain. God is not the angry, wrathful God, but we are enslaved by sin and death. Um, and then in some other versions, this is kind of into a little bit of a different theory, but it's related is that we die with Christ, and then we are raised with Christ. And so through Jesus' death and resurrection, we also die to this old way of being, and we are raised to a new life again in victory over sin and death. And you can see how this is the predominant view of a lot of Christianity. If you just look at artwork, how many pieces of art have you seen 
of the resurrection or depicting the resurrection, Jesus coming out of the tomb in, in this sort of victorious, regal look. He's glowing and he may have like a staff or a sword and he's standing on the tomb and he looks victorious because, again, that's kind of the way it began to be understood. And it's in that kind of creedal language. Um, this also um, comes out a little bit of the idea of the biblical text. When the curtain is torn, again, we don't get the curtain tear in, in Luke, but the curtain is torn. Almost again, Jesus's victory opens the way to God. It frees us from this old way of sacrifice and death and constantly having to, you know, you sin and then you have to ask for forgiveness. You have to do all that. But that Christ's victory opens up the way to God. And again, this has kind of been the predominant theory throughout a lot of Christian history. So there's some problems with this as well. This again, what about Jesus's life and Jesus's teaching? If this is all just about what Jesus accomplishes in his death, then what about his whole life? What about his teaching? What about the way he lived? Um, couldn't he have just been born and then died? Did he have to have his whole three-year ministry? Did he have to do everything he did? and teach everyone he didn't treat people the way he did. Why do we have all the stories? Why don't we just have the death? Um, and then again, in some aspects of this, Satan can become a really big player in this idea that there's this sort of cosmic battle in hell that Jesus has to defeat Satan. And then you have logical problems with that. Well, if Jesus has defeated Satan, why is there still evil? Why is it, you know, Satan still prowling around if Jesus did it on the cross or, or through his death in hell and Jesus defeated Satan in hell. Shouldn't there be no evil anymore? Those are some of the logical problems with that. Um, the last one I'll kind of talk about is a bit of an amalgamation of two. And I'm, I'm aware we're, we're getting a bit longer in this video. And this is um, what I'll call kind of moral example types. And this is um, a sort of combination of a couple. In one sense, you could say that Jesus's death is a moral example in that Jesus shows us how to live. So this actually takes seriously Jesus's whole life as, as a perfect and almost ultimate human being in, in the embodiment of humanity and Israel and all of these things, and that Jesus shows us the way to live and that through Jesus's death in a nonviolent, loving way, that Jesus shows us how to live and that by um, taking that example, and this um, comes out of like Philippians 2 and things like that, through that example, we then learn how to live and through that we defeat sin and death. And so this one kind of can go a bit hand in hand with Christus Victor. And so um, it shows us how we should live as human beings, but also simultaneously, and this is a slightly different aspect of it, it shows us the ultimate love of God, that Jesus's death is the ultimate act of love. It's the ultimate act of God saying yes to humanity, God opening his arms and showing God's love to everybody through Jesus. And that despite all of humanity's terribleness and evil and violence and all of the things that are culminated in the crowd that, that calls for Jesus to be crucified, that there is still forgiveness in that, and there's still love in that, and there's still the ultimate sort of love of God. And so do you see how this is quite different than penal substitution? God, rather than being wrathful and angry, is through the death of Jesus um, showing the ultimate love. Because again, this takes seriously the Trinitarian idea that God and Jesus are the same with the Holy Spirit. They are three in one. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, that is God dying on the cross in this ultimate act of love. 
So again, this takes seriously Jesus's life. Jesus's teaching becomes, again, ethical. He becomes the ultimate revelation of God, not just in his death, but in his life too, in how Jesus lives, how Jesus reacts to people, shows us who God is. And so again, God then is not some angry, wrathful, vengeful God. And then Jesus is loving and they're different. They're the same because Jesus is showing us that actually that idea of an angry, wrathful, vengeful God was not the right idea of God. That was an old idea of God that we invented. And Jesus is actually showing us who God is. Um, and so, like I said, this works um, in conjunction with some aspects of Christ, Christus Victor. Um, but God's God or Jesus's victory comes through a loving sacrifice and, and loving death rather than through some kind of cosmic battle in the grave with Satan. Um, the other part of this that I think really um, shines with me is the idea that this can kind of lift Jesus's death away from a sort of individual interaction where it becomes salvation becomes about me. I've sinned and it's between just me and God. And so I have to account for my own sin. And Jesus's death is really about me individually, just me. And then you have your own thing with God and you have your own thing with God. And if I sin a little personal sin, then that's me. It's between me and God and all of that sort of thing. And it lifts it out of that and makes sin larger and more about the principalities and powers, as we'll say, that the death of Jesus helps us overcome not our own individual sin explicitly, but but all of sin, all of sin and death, the ways in which people are exploited. And, and it makes it so we don't have to just care about these issues in the world because we should, but because it's actually part of our theory of atonement and that we care about fighting injustice and, you know, fighting, you know, why do we buy fair trade or why do we care about climate justice or migrants or any of these issues? It's because of the loving act of God is in all of that. And all of these things are injustices and sins that we fight following Jesus's example of love through his death. And so by overcoming sin and death, we are following that example, overcoming sin and death. And so it's not just about some cosmic ledger and the afterlife, which penal substitution is so focused on the afterlife. And it's this you know, Reformation idea of you've sinned and it's the, you know, like Jonathan Edwards is sinners in the hands of an angry God that's so afterlife focused. And you've got to just like somehow sneak into the afterlife where God loves you or it's eternal punishment. The moral example type in looking at the love of God really opens it up to um, how we live our lives now. And I think that's really, really important. Are, are there a few problems with this? Sure. Um, for some for some people in some pockets of Christianity, they would say that this doesn't really fully take into account the idea of original sin or the eternal punishment stuff. Um, but for me, that's not really a problem because going hard in for original sin and eternal punishment to me are not um, important parts of theology. Those are not core parts of theology. I don't think, I think those are things that you get to if you have an angry, wrathful God. And again, if you're reading the book of Romans through a lens of penal substitution, then you get things like Romans 3, where it talks about how all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all of that. And some of even our English translations are translated in a way in which you read Romans with penal substitution in mind. So even the translations can be kind of imbued with this. We have to be careful of that. But you don't have to read it like that. It's actually not 
the most faithful way to read something like Romans in it's just a very Reformation Calvinist way of reading it. And so um, to me, that's not really a problem. And then also you have what about the Gospel of John, the Passover lamb stuff or the ransom verses. And again, I think those are ways in which these authors are um, looking for language to describe what Jesus has done. And those are maybe aspects of what it is and ways of understanding it. But I don't think that those necessarily are the be all and end all way of understanding the death of Jesus as a ransom or as a, as a, you know, Passover lamb. Those are ways of maybe talking about it in some descriptive language. But I think the most consistent way of understanding Jesus as God is through a sort of combination of Jesus as this ultimate example of humanity and the ultimate love of God in his death. And then through that becomes the victor through the sort of Christus victor way of looking at it, where Jesus has overcome sin and death. And then we, with Jesus, overcome sin and death. So I've sort of tipped, tipped my hand um, quite, quite explicitly there into to the kind of things I like. Um, there's other ways of looking at the atonement that are um, in different pockets of Christianity historically. Again, if you're interested in that, um, have a look. Wikipedia has some stuff, but it's maybe a bit dense and, and it's a lot of kind of a historical overview. You can find some other things um, if you want to, to have a bit more of a look at some specific theories. But that's kind of my um, overview of it. This is a bit of a longer video than I would normally do, but I thought it was really important to kind of cover these things before we actually talk about the death of Jesus and that event itself. Because I think, again, the way we understand what is happening in the death of Jesus really affects how we do church, how we see the world, how we see our mission, and how we see just the relationship between God and Jesus and Christianity and the world all together. It really, really has a wide-reaching impact. So that is, um, that's our Bible Ponder for this week. Thanks for sticking with us through this uh, longer video. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you found it helpful and interesting. Um, and we will see you next week where we will dive back in to Luke. Thanks, everyone.